One of the beauties of coming together as those who want to worship this God and because of Jesus, our brothers and sisters in the Messiah, is to hear the scriptures that you've already been hearing to see that we're part of a much larger story, right? We're, we're part of a much larger stream of what God is doing. And it's important to know that whole story so we can situate ourselves within it. It's what Paul has been teaching us and he's going to show us yet again today when he quotes the prophets, among them Isaiah, as we will study Romans 11 this morning together. And in Isaiah 59, from which he quotes, he speaks and points at this part of the story where Israel is in just horrible sin, horrible sin against a holy God. And here's, here's what he says. He, he says first, in light of that, the Lord's arm, Yahweh's arm, is not too weak to save. His ear is not too deaf to hear. But the problem is your iniquities are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not listen. He could, but there's this problem between you and Him. And then He goes on in Isaiah 59 verses 3 and following, and he gets very detailed about how absolutely shocking their sin is. If you were to read this text, it's just absolutely shocking. Almost so that you would think, there's just no hope for these people. He gets to verse 20. Isaiah gets to his prophecy, and he says this. "Even Even in the face of all of that, the Redeemer will come to Zion. Now, note that, because when we get to Romans 11, you're going to see, as we learned last week, Paul is going to quote that just a bit differently. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. There's hope. <laughs> this is Yahweh's declaration. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever, says Yahweh. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father God, we are so grateful that you have not been silent that you have sent a son for us. Unto us a son is born. Unto us a son is given. That you have spoken into the darkness. That you have lifted. As, as Paul mentioned earlier, we, we come in with this guilt and the evil one seeks to bring about shame because of that guilt. Your spirit doesn't work that way. He brings conviction of, sh- of sin and you, and you remove our shame. You've taken away our shame. Our shame was laid on Jesus. Our punishment was laid on Him. He bore all of our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. The chastisement of your peace was upon Him. And we glorify Him and we glorify you. And we glorify the work of the Spirit now among us this morning. I have felt you already moving. I have seen glories of you already this morning, and I'm so grateful for that. And I'm greedy for more. Come. Well, would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11? Romans chapter 11.
Are you ready to study God's Word? (laughs) I hope that you really mean that. I hope that you're eager this morning. We're going to dig into what is a large, and I have felt um, for a lot of years of my life following Jesus to be a, a fairly intimidating passage from verses 11 all the way to verse 32. Um, but I think God has some things that he's going to make clear for us this morning as we study Romans 11. And before we do, I think there's something that you need to have firmly in your mind as you read along with me and as you hear what Paul has to say. Namely, in order to understand this part of the letter, chapter 11, verses 11 to 32, you need to remember the whole letter. What Paul has been on about in this letter is explaining the world around us, right? So just remember that kind of simply. There's lots of complexity and arguments and, and facts and propositions, but at the end of the day, what Paul is doing is explaining the world around us. He's explaining what God is up to in relationship to all of humanity that lives in this world. He is simply, but powerfully, but simply telling the story. And what struck me as I studied Romans 11 this week is that Paul is not telling us why God has done what he has done, but more so simply what God has done, which is hard for us because we're naturally curious creatures. We ask questions pretty much from the time that we could begin talking. We ask questions, and often that first question was what? (laughs) Well done. It hasn't worn off, apparently, in your old age. And that's not a bad question, actually. It's not a bad desire wanting to know why. But the thing is, we won't always get to know why God has done what he has done. That might be a little bit, that might get you a little bit peeved this morning. But if you think about it, he's God. (laughs) And even if he did, Listen, even if God did provide all the details, I mean, think about this. He's God. Even if he did tell me everything, I probably still wouldn't understand it. Just like that advanced calculus teacher tried to get me to understand in sophomore year in college. Because God's ways are not our ways. He's God, after all. Which is why I think it's important that we should actually begin at the very end of Romans 11 this morning with what you just sang. Because I believe it may create in us, Romans 11, 33 to 36, actually may create in us the kind of attitude that we should have when we hear Paul describing through the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is Paul is being influenced and anointed by the Holy Spirit to tell this story to us of what God is doing in the world, what God is doing with Jews and Gentiles in his world. This is his world. He gets to do what he wants. In Romans eleven thirty three to 36, I think, has the opportunity to provide us with a kind of attitude of awe, a response of humility, an admission of our finitude and humanness in contrast to the godness of God. So I want you to stand. Stand and I want you to read this passage out loud with me. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of Yahweh? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, I believe that this passage is one that we should all commit to memory if you haven't already. And I mean that, please. If you don't memorize Scripture often, please start this week with these verses. Because I think this passage is a touchstone of our humanity that it should be central in our thinking whenever we come to explicit descriptions regarding what God is up to in the world. It has the power and possibility of keeping in us the attitude of Job when he was given glimpses of the workings of God because that's what we have for us in Romans 11, 11 to 32. We have glimpses of the workings of God. <laughs> I mean, we should fall like the 24 elders fell in the book of Revelation prostrate before him, saying, worthy are you. You're so ineffable. It's it's amazing what you're letting us see. And when Job saw glimpses like that, his response was, I am so insignificant. Not, who do you think you are? How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. And this is important. It's not that God shuts down questions. So this is the tension of the Christian life. Hand over mouth, and he doesn't shut down questions. He doesn't shut down our curiosity. It's just that, well... (laughs) We should understand our place when we ask the questions. We should never think that we get to put God on the witness stand like we're some kind of prosecutor in law and order, asking him questions, kind of grilling him to get to the bottom of what he's up to. Rather, we come on our knees, worshipful, seeking to know his ways, and then worshiping him for those ways, whether we even understand him or not, to him be the glory forever. And so with that attitude in place, and please, Father, this morning, we we pray now that this attitude of awe and humility and worship would be in place by the power of your spirit in our hearts this morning. With that in place, brothers and sisters, let's marvel. <laughs> so with that in place, now we get to like come and we get to, okay, show me God. I, I want to marvel. I, I want to worship you for what you're doing in the process of saving Jews and Gentiles. And let me encourage you this morning as we head into this text. I think that what God is doing in the redemptive story is actually pretty straightforward. It's actually pretty simple when you hear what he's doing in the story. I think you're going to be able to follow this actually pretty easily. Understanding why God did it this way, well, that's another matter. (laughs) But what he's up to here, I think you're going to get. So, let's get at it. In the same way that Paul had created earlier in Romans. Some of you remember this. If you were here, he created kind of an imaginary Jew who was asking all these questions that Paul knew needed answering. So in chapter 11, he has created for us an imaginary Gentile who's bringing up questions that need answering. The first of those questions was in verse 1. You can see it up there if you get your eyes up there. With this Gentile wondering... Since Israel as a whole is rejecting the Messiah and therefore God, does that mean God is rejecting them? And we discovered last week in our study, Paul saying, absolutely not. And now another question arises from this Gentile. I ask then, verse 11, has Israel stumbled so as to fall? This past week, I was hiking, and the, the path that I was on was 
Honestly, about 50% of it was pretty treacherous with ice. You, you probably all have had this experience hiking around here. And there were a number of times when I slipped on the ice because there was a dusting of snow, you know, kind of just covers that up. And even though you, you know that there's dangerous stuff underneath that little dusting of snow, right? You're like, you're kind of walking carefully. And what can happen? You could be walking, you, you do that thing, right? And that's what I did. Thankfully, the entire hike, I kept catching myself before I falled on my keister. I stumbled, but I didn't fall. You see, Israel was intended to see Jesus as Messiah and accept him so that they might smoothly walk into the fullness of God's promises for them. But instead, Jesus became a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, the scriptures tell us, and they stubbed their toes on him. Paul sees them stumbling. The Gentiles see them stumbling and they're wondering, has that stumbling led to their complete fall? A a falling off the deep end, as it were, a a kind of being down for the count. There they are laying on the ground. (coughs) And Paul responds similarly. Verse 11, absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Huh. And this is the first description of what God is up to now and how he is saving both Gentiles and Jews. You see, Paul says, what God does first is to orchestrate the stumbling of his own people, his covenant children, as a way to open the door for the Gentiles to enter into the covenant family. And he's doing this because he wants to save all ethnicities. Because that's what everyone is who's not a Jew, right? They're a Gentile. And Paul, <laughs> he, had see, he had seen this, he'd seen this in, his, in his own ministry. He had discovered this. He'd seen it play out. On no fewer than four separate occasions in Luke's history of Paul's ministry, the, the Acts of the Apostles, really the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the Apostles is what we should call that book. We hear how the Jews' rejection of the good news led to its offer to and acceptance by the Gentiles. Let me give you one example, Acts 13, 45 to 46. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Do you hear Romans there? And they began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Well, Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, We're not surprised. It it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. And since you reject it, and therefore, and this is sobering, judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, well, we are turning to the Gentiles. What's Paul saying? Jewish rejection opened the door to Gentile inclusion. However, Paul's quick to say that didn't mean that Jews had irrevocably fallen. Because even this move by God in the story was meant to make Jews jealous. In other words, Paul explains that when Jews see Gentiles enjoying their blessings, it's supposed to be their blessings in the Messiah, when they see Gentiles enjoying the good that comes from covenant renewal, when they see the joy of Jesus on them, they themselves become desirous of it and they want that thing when they're happy Gentiles. (laughs) A whole other sermon on the joy of Jesus on us. So people would look and be desirous of him. In this way, we see that there, isn't this interesting? Because normally we think, well, jealousy is a sin, right? Like jealousy is a bad thing. But but in this way, we said that there, there is actually a kind of jealousy that's good. In other words, when, When you're jealous for something that's holy and righteous and good, that's a good thing. It's okay to be jealous of that. Look at how much she loves Jesus. I'm so jealous of her. I want some of that for myself. See, God wants Jews to emulate and long for what they see Gentiles enjoying in and through and because of what he is doing in Gentiles. Paul goes on, verse 12. 
Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, the Jews, fullness bring? Okay, so what's going on here? Because it could be kind of hard to follow if you're not paying attention closely. As Paul unfolds the story, we discover that blessing ricochets. It's almost like watching a pinball bounce back and forth in a pinball machine. Have you ever played pinball? In his story, God first brings salvation and blessing to the Jews, but as his redemptive plan unfolds, the Jews stumble over that plan, and so the blessing bounces to the Gentiles, but that ricochet is actually a controlled one meant to make Jews jealous and so lead to their restoration and fullness, and in this way, much greater blessings will go to the whole world. That's what God's doing. And what those greater riches, riches and blessings are that will come to the whole world Well, honestly, Paul doesn't elaborate on. He just says that it is, and it will happen. And he leaves us to ponder and awe and wonder. I wonder what those greater blessings are. Now, I think it's good to pause here and note something. What Paul is showing us, and this is good because most of us here are Gentiles. And what Paul is doing is showing us the interlocking destiny of Israel and the Gentiles. In other words, our fortunes are tied to one another. And it is this aspect of God's redemptive plan that Paul is going to go on and elaborate further as we progress in the chapter. But before we see that, I think it's important for me to say a little something about that interlocking destiny of Israel in Gentiles because I think there's great confusion about this in the church you see we can get confused because when we hear Paul say Israel and, and you know and, and frankly let me say this I I haven't I don't know that I've been at grace long enough to really know how you might be thinking about the interlocking destiny of Gentiles and Israel I can only speak from my experience that the, I think there's great confusion in the mainline evangelical church about that. And there's all kinds of wonky theology that erupts out of Romans 11 that wasn't meant to come from Romans 11. And so that's what I'm trying to clarify. So either this will be helpful to you or it will just be affirmative to you. See, I think we can get confused because when we hear Paul say Israel most Americans probably immediately think of the geopolitical nation state that was created in 1948 and is situated in the Middle East. But that is not the Israel that Paul is talking about. When Paul uses the word Israel in Romans 11, he's talking about the ethnic group known as Jews. And I think that that confusion of ancient and modern terms for Jews and Israel has led to all kinds of confusion in the wider evangelical church about how the fortunes of Gentiles are tied to the fortunes of what they think of as Israel. But biblically, in Romans 11, here's what Paul is on about, I think. The fortunes of the geopolitical nation state known as America, or any other nation for that matter, are not tied to the geopolitical nation-state formed in 1948 and known as Israel. However, listen to me carefully, the fortunes of Gentiles within the nation-state known as America and all other nations, so the fortunes of Gentiles, are in fact tied to the fortunes of the ethnic peoples known as Jews that are scattered throughout the world. That's what Paul is teaching us. That's what he wants us to understand. So I think it would be a helpful thing, particularly in Romans 11, because here's the other thing about Paul. Honestly, in Romans, there are times when he means one thing when he says Israel and he means another thing when he says Israel. And that can be a little frustrating, actually. And when he says Israel in Romans 11, what I think he's referring to are Jews, ethnic Jews, all of them. So wherever you see the word Israel in Romans 11, and and this is okay, it's not sacrilegious, 
you could write in your Bible Jews above that word. That would help you probably. Instead of immediately going to this nation state that currently exists in the Middle East to think Jews spread throughout the whole world. And that's really important because Paul wants us as Gentiles to see that our fortunes and destiny are tied to Jews both in his day and still in ours, which is why he addresses us specifically. Verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Which causes me to just once again love Paul. He is making clear that he has modeled his ministry after the character and activity of God. And he wants us as Gentiles to understand that the only reason that he would want to magnify his ministry, which you may think that's kind of proud of you, But no, he wants to magnify his ministry is because he wants to accomplish exactly what God wants to accomplish. Namely, Paul, along with God, wants to make his own people, the Jews, jealous so that he might not only save Gentiles, but Jews. Is he an apostle to the Gentiles? Yes. But even in that apostleship, he is an apostle to the Jews. And he explains this by way of a rhetorical question in verse 15, which we know is thus a statement. So let's turn it into a statement. The rejection of Jesus as Messiah by Jews actually brings reconciliation to the world and their acceptance which follows, motivated by jealousy, means life from the dead. I think this at least, it at least means that Paul is saying that Jews coming to faith will be so amazing and so miraculous that the only proper way to explain it is through the word resurrection. But I think Paul might actually be alluding to something else. I think Paul may see in this rejection and then resurrection of Jews the rejection and resurrection of their Messiah. I see this from N.T. Wright. I think he's on to something really important here. Paul is asking us to imagine that what has happened to Jews in the purposes of God is nothing short of an acting out of what happened to the Messiah. Jesus was brought low so that the world might be lifted up. Jesus was cast away for the reconciliation of the world and brought back to life so that all might live through him. And God has, as it were, written the story of the Messiah into larger history as the story of the Messiah's people according to the flesh, Romans 9, 5. And the only way Paul knows how to understand what has happened to Jews is the pattern of Jesus, the Messiah. Do you see? (laughs) The role of Jews in the redemptive plan of God is like unto the role of the Jew, Jesus, in that plan. And that's good to remember, isn't it? Because sometimes I think we actually honestly forget that Jesus was actually a Jew. And all of this is happening for us as Gentiles. And thus, brothers and sisters, we have Jews to thank for our reconciliation. We have Jesus to thank for our reconciliation. How unsearchable are his judgments and how untraceable are his ways. But God's not done with the Jews. 
They haven't fallen off the deep end and he still desires their salvation and Paul wants us to see that. And like most good storytellers do, he's gonna do that by means of some illustrations. So given that Paul writes to a largely agrarian culture, it's not surprising that his illustrations would hail from the world of horticulture. So let's call it divine horticulture. Verse 16, now if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. So, so what's Paul on about with this little illustration? Well, when the people of God would, would come to harvest time, as, as they would start to see the harvest coming into fruition, they would take a portion of that harvest, the, what they called the first fruits, the best of that harvest as they could see, and they would offer that as a sacrifice to God. And in that offering, what they were doing is they were setting a part of some of the whole of the harvest as an example and as, as a piece of that harvest, setting apart to God in order that the whole of the harvest would see his blessing upon it, that it would all be sanctified unto God by giving just a portion of the first fruits. And Paul is pointing to that principle in relationship to the Jewish people. He's helping us to understand that the qualities of an item's germinal state extends to its part. So he's drawing a connection between the illustration and the Jewish people. Namely, if there is a remnant that is holy and believing, a first fruit, if you will, there is still yet hope that this remnant set apart could have an influence on the rest. So they haven't completely fallen off the ledge. They're not beyond hope. This germinal state of salvation in the remnant may work its way into the rest. Similarly, look at the second half of verse 16. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Same principle, yes? Now in this next bit, as Paul explains this, I want you to note what I think is a central pastoral aim that Paul has for us as Gentiles. Because here's the thing. He has you absolutely dead in his sights. He has us. I want you to remember that in Rome, Nero had exiled all the Jews. Remember this from the very beginning of the letter when we set this up. And that was creating some problems when under a new emperor, all of the Jews returned. And that created problems not only in the church but in the wider culture because here's this weird group of people with their monotheistic belief in the midst of an entire culture that believes in all kinds of gods so that they were not easily accepted. And so anti-Jewish sentiment, anti-Semitism was rampant in all kinds of ways. And that had crept into the church as well. And Paul thinks that's incredibly serious and he's deeply troubled that Gentiles would be prideful and arrogant and boastful about their position and place before God as relates to the Jews. As if God had somehow turned his attention fully on Gentiles and not on the Jews any longer. I don't care about them anymore. And so he turns his pastoral authority wisdom and instruction to Gentiles, to us, who could, couldn't we say that we live in an age that's increasingly anti-Semitic? My goodness. And wouldn't there be in us, <laughs> what do the scriptures teach? Pride goes before a fall. So we're in danger. We, we live in risk of pride and boasting over Jews. Verse 17, now some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. Do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, so don't boast, but I know how, you know, you're a human. So if you do boast, well then remember, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. You see, Paul has not backed down from what he's argued thus far. Branches have been broken off. That's what's broken his heart. His kinsmen have rejected Jesus as Messiah and thus are really and truly cut out of the tree. 
And God, the divine horticulturalist, has broken something else off, us Gentiles, off a wild olive tree. Picture bramble bushes out in the desert plain, just all run amuck and squaggly and squirrely. And, and he takes one of those branches off, grafts into this rich, beautiful, cultivative olive tree that grafts in this branch. In other words, we have been grafted in among the people of God. We have been spliced into the heritage of Abraham and the patriarchs, the root and foundation of God's redemptive plan in the world. That holy sap now flows through our veins. And in this way, we enter in to Jewishness. We become a part of true Israel. And Paul is clear. This was done to us. We didn't cut ourselves off and graft ourselves in. God did this. So we are without boasting. We do not sustain the root. The root sustains us. The root of all the promises made to Jews are now ours. We share in their inheritance. <laughs> Look now to verse 19. But Paul is so good. He, he sees a potential objection. Well, then you will say, yeah, well, okay, yeah, but those branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. As if, you know, like, look at me. Look how much God wanted me in the tree. What's remarkable is Paul actually grants the objection. Verse 20, true enough. True enough. Yeah, he wanted you. He broke you off. He grafted you in, but not so fast. Because they were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand by faith. <laughs> Do not be arrogant, but beware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Paul is bold in his clarity. It is Jewish unbelief that had cast cut them off from the promises. And as a Gentile, it wasn't anything we did. It wasn't any work we offered that had him grab us and graft us in. It was by faith. It was by grace, chapter 11, verse 6, so that it could be called grace. Do we think that we are any better than the branches that were there in the first place? If in our arrogance we start to reveal we aren't actually believing in the Messiah alone for our standing, Paul is clear, God will not spare us either. Verse 22, therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you. If you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. In other words, don't lose your grip on God. Don't stray from understanding the kind of God he is and how he operates in his redemptive plan and story. I love how one commentator applies this to Gentiles and Jews for that matter. Quote, how easy it is for us too to forget one aspect or another of who God is. Some people imagine God to be always severe, always cross, always ready to find fault. Such people urgently need to discover just how kind and gracious God has been in Jesus the Messiah and how this grace is theirs for the asking. But... Other people sometimes imagine that God is simply kind and generous in a sense which would rule out his ever rebuking or warning anyone about anything. Such people as this urgently need to discover just how much God hates evil and all its destructive and damaging ways and how firmly he confronts and ultimately rejects those who Insist in perpetrating those kinds of things. End quote. The Roman Gentiles needed to understand this double aspect of the character of God. And we Gentiles still need to learn it today. 
but what of the Jews? Is there any hope for them getting back into the family tree? Verse 23. And even they, even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree, Gentile, and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Do you remember what we learned last week? No one is too far gone. No one is beyond the reach of God's unstoppable grace. And Paul's doubling down on that right here. God has the power to graft them in again. They were cut off because of unbelief, but belief is still possible. The lost and rebellious are still savable. Why? Because God. God. And in almost a comical way, Paul makes the argument that if wild branches like us could be made a part of a cultivated and well-kept and good-looking tree, something that is against the natural order of things, that's just not natural, then how much easier? <laughs> Which, see, I say comical because God has to condescend to us in our humanness to try and be understand. Because, right, like, to talk of anything being easy or difficult in terms of who God is, right? Like, <laughs> nothing's hard for God. It's all easy. But he's speaking in terms that we can kind of understand, like, yeah, that seems easier, that seems harder. I love the way one commentator humorously points this out. If God can bring pork-eating, idol-worshiping, bisexual pagans into his new covenant people, which seems a hard thing to do, how much more can he incorporate people who already possess an adoption to sonship, divine glory, the covenants, receiving of the law, temple worship, the promises of the patriarchs, a shared ancestry with the Messiah, into his renewed covenant people, which seems like a comparatively easy thing to do. While the Gentiles get in, they do so as unnatural outsiders to the olive tree, whereas Jews, by faith, can come back into their own olive tree. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. Paul has one final plot twist for us. Verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. Here it is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from, and here's that, what we read earlier in the service, right? And now see, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with him when I take away their sins. So, as Paul steps back, he tells us what God has been up to is a mystery. Okay, so follow, follow now with me. We've covered a lot, I know. We're almost done. <laughs> what God has been up to is a mystery, but not the kind that we'll never figure out, Paul says. That's why he wants us to know this mystery, even though we may not fully understand it, even if all the things that God is up to seem overly complex and torturous. I mean, are you like me that you look at this story and you see this blessing that's ricocheting around and you think, like, it could have been so much more simple. Like, who, who's, who's, uh, have we all watched Lord of the Rings? Uh, seen those movies? So many of us have seen those movies. I, I remember seeing a video one time where it's like, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, couldn't you have just taken, remember those big, huge eagles that Gandalf, you know, called upon a, at the end of the story? Like, why didn't he just call one of those big eagles at the very beginning, put that little ring in one of its talons and have them just fly over Mordor and drop it in the lava? Story done. That took like three minutes. <laughs> you could go, Tolkien? Like, Really? 1,200 pages? Why was all of that necessary? And sometimes we can look at God and go, God, why did you just go, you know what, saving everybody? Now, I don't know why 
other than my go-to theological answer to that question is because he's God and it must be the way that he can get himself the most glory. Even in this, Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant of what God is up to because as he's been warning all along, right? The reason I want you to know and I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery, again, is because I'm afraid of you becoming conceited. I don't want you to be proud or boastful or arrogant as a Gentile. And he makes clear that a part of the Jewish people has been hardened, a part of them. And he says, again, to make sure we don't miss it, this has happened so the door could be opened to Gentiles. And all of that is happening until the fullness of Gentiles come in. And it is in this way, verse 26, this is the plan, this is the mystery, it's in this way that all Jews will be saved. And then he's pointing us yet again to the importance of knowing the whole story because he quotes the promises of the prophets that the deliverer Jesus will come from heaven and will turn godlessness away from Jacob and by extension his people, the Jews, and that will fulfill the covenant, the word and promises of God to the Jews, thus taking away all of their sin. (laughs) Wow! Hallelujah! So... We have to say, though, right, at verse 26, what does it mean that all Jews will be saved? Anybody else have that question? I had that question. And when will that happen? And how will that happen? Well, I don't have time to work you through all of the potential answers to those three questions. I, don't, I, I had, like, this really big diagram like that had all of these potential options for each of those questions. And I thought, ooh, I could put that up on the screens. And I, I thought, boy, at this time in the sermon, they're probably already feeling like, man. <laughs> so I didn't, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you my current understanding of this text that I think gives the answer, answers to those questions. So who is all Israel? The Jews. I think that it is the elect within the Jews. When does Israel or the Jews get saved? I believe they get saved across the history of the church's missionary outreach to Jews and in, as well, in a wave of revival prior to the second coming of Jesus where a majority of Jews at that time will receive him. And how does Israel, how do the Jews get saved? They get saved the way all ethnicities, Jew and Gentile alike, get saved. By faith in the Messiah, Jesus, the Jew, Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the humbling truth of this mystery. Verse 28. Regarding the good news, the Jews are enemies for your advantage. He's speaking to you, Gentiles. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Jews were made enemies of the good news of the Jew, Jesus, by God for our advantage. That we might become a part of them and thus the people and family of God. But regarding election, regarding the saving and sovereign purposes of God, he never, ever stopped loving them. And they never stopped being his beloved because of the patriarchs. His gift and grace are still on offer and he has no misgivings about that. That's what that word irrevocable means in verse 29. He has no misgivings, no regrets. He is not sorry about his commitments to the Jewish people. Their disobedience that opened the spigot of mercy to be poured out on us as Gentiles is to wash over us so that they too may be drenched in the gracious calling and salvation of God. That's been the story all along. That's the story. Disobedience is the dungeon in which God has incarcerated all human beings so that they have no possibility of escape except as God's mercy releases them. John, stop. 
The whole world, writes Paul elsewhere, is a prisoner of sin, locked up until faith should be revealed. So, how now should we live? How now should we live? One of my go-to questions for a response to the study of God's word is that question. It comes from Francis Schaeffer. How should we, in light of what we've seen of God in Romans 11, live? In light of the warnings of Paul in Romans 11, live. In light of the glory of the good news in Romans 11, how should we live? I have two ways that grab my heart that maybe have happened to you here or would be helpful for you. First, I want to live more of my days with a smile on my face in light of the gracious action of God to cut off a brambly branch like me and put me into the glorious cultivated root of the people on whom he set his love. I want to just glory in that. I want to be happy in that. I owe the fortunes of my riches of grace to Jews <laughs> by the sovereign and saving purposes of God. It was a Jewish Messiah dying on a Roman cross that fulfilled all of God's promises to Israel and initiated a new covenant and took away my sin. Second, worship team, would you come up? And because that has happened to me, because that has happened to me in that very particular way, right, Paul, Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant of exactly how we came to Jesus. Because of that, I want to live more of my days caring about who God cares about, namely the Jews. You see, Paul unashamedly went to the Jew first and then the Greek in that order of priority. And Paul did that following the example of our Savior, Jesus, who went to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And if God cares this way about Jews, if he has a special place in his heart for this people, then it must follow that if we love God and want to be like him, we will love who he loves. So the Jews must have a special place in our hearts as well. Their failure has brought riches for us. How much more would their fullness bring riches to the world? And how could we not want that and work for that and ask God? How could we not ask God? God, how can we be a part of that? Show us. Would you stand with me? And would you read with me? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said,